If you have a Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. If you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. We'll dismiss the kids and you guys, ladies, would like to grab a Bible back there. It would be great. We'll have some of the verses up there. Actually, we'll have all the verses today, but it would be good to have a Bible. If you don't have one, please keep it. It's yours. We are in Nehemiah chapter 8. We're continuing our study on Ezra and Nehemiah. And kids, you're dismissed. I guess I don't need to say that anymore. I was going to do it. I, I just so you know, I've been... Uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, one book in the Hebrew text, uh, two books in our Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, we're in Nehemiah 9 at Kings. We go through books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And now we're in Nehemiah 9 as we continue through this wonderful Old Testament book. Let me bring everybody quickly up to speed. Jewish people, because of their sin and rebellion, were taken into captivity from Jerusalem, the promised land, into Babylon. God had told them after prophet after prophet, warning after warning, to repent, but they did not listen. God promised through Jeremiah that while they were in in exile in Babylon, after 70 years, he would bring them back to the promised land, the second exodus. Remember, the first exodus is when Moses, under the leadership of Moses, the Israelites were taken from Egypt and brought into the promised land. Here, the second exodus begins with Ezra. As the the book opens up in Ezra 1, the Jews leaving captivity in Babylon and returning to the promised land, the second exodus, under the leadership of Zerubbabel. They immediately build an altar and begin to sacrifice and worship Sacrificing animal on the altar as atonement for their sins very appropriately. Shortly after that, they rebuild the temple. And at the end of, by the end of Nehemiah, the temple is rebuilt and rededicated. And the people are starting to deal with the sin in their lives, submitting themselves to the word of God under the leadership of Ezra. Ezra, we said, was a scribe, a Levite, a Bible scholar, a Bible teacher, but also was in the lineage of Aaron, the high priest. The book of Nehemiah opens up with a man named Nehemiah. He's the cupbearer to the king. The temple is rebuilt, but the walls have been torn down. And Nehemiah really is all about rebuilding the city's walls. They had been broken down. Its gates had been burned with fire. We saw that Nehemiah was, not, was, was a great leader. He saw a city that was in ruin. But he also saw a city that had hope. Maybe you're here this morning because the walls of your life has been torn down, your heart is aching, you're looking at the mess in your life, wondering, where did this come from? How did I get here? Can I ever be restored? Can the ruins ever be restored again? God speaks to us through Nehemiah. He speaks about a renewal and a restoration and of hope. Nehemiah is a book of hope. Because God is a God of all hope. Paul told the church of Rome in chapter 15, May the God of all hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Chapters 1 through 6, Nehemiah responds to the call and we see him leading the people in rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. 52 days. The walls were in rubbish. They were burnt down. And Nehemiah and his crew 
rebuild these walls in 52 days, and he teaches us about relationships. His relationship with God, his relationship with God's people, how to handle attacks, if you remember, from the outside. There were those who wanted to stop the building of the wall. And then there were attacks or problems from within. Nehemiah teaches us how to handle that as well. He also teaches us how important it is to work together, to have unity, to accomplish great things for God. Nehemiah loved his God. Nehemiah also loved God's people. It's a picture. The first six chapters is a picture of the restoring nature of God in the gospel. Because all of us have, how, have had walls in ruins. None of us can say we are without sin. None of us can say we are without brokenness. We've all been separated from God because each one of us has not lived up to God's holy demands. And because God is perfect and holy and he cannot and will not embrace sin, and because we are sinful and rebellious, it does not make for a harmonious relationship. And just like Nehemiah, Jesus Christ sent into a fallen broken, twisted world to redeem and to restore that which once was separated and in ruins. Like Nehemiah, King Jesus comes into the rebel. We're all rebellious. And the rubble of our life and restores and reconciles us to God, our creator, through the cross. He does as each one of us yield our lives, repent of our sins, and put our faith in Christ alone as saving Lord of our lives. If there's anything you get from coming to this church Sunday after Sunday, anything that I would like you to take away even today is this one simple fact. Your sin, my sin, has separated us from God. And Jesus Christ died on the cross in our place and by his blood, because his blood was shed, he pays and atones for our sins and reconciles us to God. That's what the Bible is about. It is the Bible is a book of gospel. It's about Jesus Christ. Nehemiah 1 through 6 about the restoring work of God. Nehemiah 7, we said, is a transitional chapter where Nehemiah is going from rebuilding walls to revitalizing people. From mortar to relationships. From, from working on the walls to reforming God's people and, 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 and meeting with them, and him, them meeting with their God, and change is starting to take place. We saw that already. In biblical language, it's called sanctification. If you never heard that word before, sanctification. I want to take a little sidetrack. As I was studying this week, Ricky and I had prepared to finish chapter 9 today. I got to verse 7. Because there's been something on my heart about what's going on in Nehemiah that I've been putting off, putting off, putting off. So I'm like, we're going to cover it this week. And that's the issue of sanctification. It's the issue of sanctification. We're going to take a sidestep because this is what is happening in Nehemiah 8, 9 and throughout the rest of the book is the word sanctification. The understanding of biblical, biblical language called sanctification. Now the word is the word hagias, meaning to set apart. The verb means to make something holy, to set something apart. For the believer in Jesus Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it means that we have been set apart negatively from sin and set apart positively or consecrated to God. There, there, is a, there is a separation that has taken place. The Word of God teaches us that sanctification is both a process and an event. You need to understand that this morning. Sanctification is a one-time event and a process. 
that's in motion. It is both. It is something Christ has done once and for all, and is also something that is incomplete and needs to continue on, or, or it needs to be developed. Sanctification, the setting apart from sin, dedication to God, is an event that's taken place, and it's a process that needs developing. Okay, That's very important you understand that. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul, the apostle, rehearses this list of sinful practices, and he says to the Corinth church, and such were, past tense, some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now the verbs in that, you were sanctified, you were justified, is in the aorist, passive indicative. I know you're thinking, I'm not trying to be smart. I'm really not that smart, okay? But that's important. Because the aorist denotes past time. It's passive, which means the subject, us, is being acted upon by God. God is doing this. He's sanctifying. He's justifying. He's washing. Past time, God is doing the work. And the indicative mood means it's something that is factual, Okay, I'm telling you all this because it's very important. What Paul is saying is the when we are sanctified, the believer's status before God is one of being washed or having been washed. He's been declared righteous, justified, and he has been sanctified in Christ because of the work of Jesus Christ, God's atoning sacrifice. Jesus' work, his obedience to the law of God fully satisfied the justice of God. It's an event. It happened at the cross. It happens when we have faith in God. Colossians 1 puts it this way. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. That was where we were. That was our position. That was our status. And transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. So the status of a believer goes from darkness to light, from one kingdom to another kingdom. However, this new position, this new status, does not assume that we have arrived to this perfect sanctified condition. Because within the word sanctified and sanctification in the Bible, the Bible talks about us being, being sanctified, being transformed, being in the process of becoming more like Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 5, may the God of peace continue to sanctify you completely. There's a striving toward Christ-likeness, being more set apart from sin and more dedicated to God. Do you understand? You follow me? There's an event and there's a process. Every follower of Jesus Christ, every regenerated follower of Jesus Christ has been set apart from sin and is set apart for God by his grace and continues in the process of being set apart from sin and by his grace also and set apart for God. So sanctification, the process growing in grace and the likeness of God, that is important, does not make God love us any more than he already does. God already loves us, receives us completely and fully by faith in Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus alone. Okay? So we should never aim for conformity, this process of sanctification, as a condition of forgiveness or our salvation, but the fruit or the evidence of our salvation that we've received by faith through grace. Transforming into becoming more like Christ is evidenced 
with the saving grace of God in our life. The Apostle Paul said this, For those God foreknew, that's an intimate relationship, He has also predestined, determined beforehand, to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. This is what God is doing over the next few chapters. There's restoration, and then there is sanctification. He rescued them, He renewed them, He restored the walls, and now He is growing them. The reason I bring this up, if we don't understand that sanctification is both a process becoming more like Jesus and a status and a position of being set apart from one dominion to another, from darkness to light, if we don't understand that, that I will tie the process, the process of my sanctification back to my salvation and that becomes a problem. You see, If I do that, and as I walk through life, and I fall, and I blow it, and I experience the weight of the sin of my life, and my convictions, and I'm convicted about my wrongdoing, I will live under the dark and black cloud of guilt, and go back to the working working of my salvation, for my salvation. In other words, if I don't recognize that my salvation... The work of Jesus, the event of my salvation, uh, of sanctification because of Christ has done, is a gift. It's free. It's by grace alone, through Christ alone, his work on the cross. He already loves me and saved me and completely accepts me. Then when I live, and I sin, and I will, I will live in the fear of losing that acceptance and love if I tie the events and the sanctification process as one. You have to understand that. Okay? I, I, here's what happens. It's an event. It's took place. Sheer grace. Christ alone. Him alone. He alone saved me from my sin. I can do nothing to earn it. He has totally given it to me. But then there's a process. And if I tie the process into what the work of Christ, then I'm earning my salvation. Then I'm in fear of losing my salvation. I'm in fear of losing the acceptance of Christ that has been done by Christ alone. Does that make sense? I can't tie those events together. It's by grace alone that I'm saved. It's by grace alone that the event took place, that I've been set apart from one kingdom to another. But then there's that time in my life that God is chastising me in love because he is in the process of making me more like his son. And I'm hard-headed. <laughs> and I sin. And everybody's laughing. That's right, I know. It's not a secret. It's not like, oh, no one knows that. Everyone knows. I say dumb things to my wife. I was talking with the band, you know, yesterday, I, I mean, I said the stupidest thing. I'm embarrassed to even tell you. The rest of the band can go around telling everybody later, but because I, I told them it was dumb. But it's not tied to the work of Christ. God is chastising me because he loves me. God is correcting me because he loves me. When I sin, I fail and I fall and I realize that the event has taken place and I'm saved. I can be rebuked. I can be chastised. There still can be joy, love, peace, patience. There still can be an intimate relationship with Christ. Okay? So there's a difference. There's a huge difference. The other thing that can happen, and I just want to warn you, brothers and sisters, family and friends, what can happen is if we don't recognize that the event has taken place through Christ alone, the cross alone, and the process is working itself out, okay, what can happen is we're so set on the event that there's been no change in our life. 
Now, the change is not what saves us, but it's the evidence of what saves us. And the Bible says that if you're a follower of Christ and there's been nothing changed in your life, the Apostle Paul says yourself. To see whether or not you are in the faith, test yourself. Or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? There should be a distinctiveness unless indeed you fail to meet the test. True faith will always manifest itself in a change. It's the evidence, it's, not, it's the fruit, it's not the reality of what Christ has done. And some people say, well, what about the thief on the cross? Was there really change? Was there this sanctification process that you talk about? Yes. He went from cursing Jesus to saying, King Jesus, remember me to come into your kingdom. That's a change. It was a short-lived sanctification process. I'll tell you that. It was a few minutes. But there was evidence of his genuine faith in King Messiah who was dying on the cross. And he said, King Jesus, I'm not cursing you out anymore. Invite me, please, into your kingdom because you're the king. There's a change that takes place. Change doesn't save you. Change the evidence of genuine faith. So we have to understand the difference. There's an event that takes place and there's a process as well. In Nehemiah chapter 8, we're witnessing part of how this process works. We saw in Nehemiah 8 how the word of God cut to the heart of what really mattered in the transforming, sanctifying the process of God, making them more like Jesus, right? Ezra the priest, if you remember chapter 8, he opened the word of God reverently. They bowed and they knew that God was speaking. He taught the word of God understandably. He broke it down to them. He contextualizes that they understood. The first response was to weep over the failures of not keeping God's word. But Nehemiah and Ezra said, look, today is fully on to the Lord. We're back in a relationship with our God. Throw a party. Have some steak. Drink and be merry. Today is holy. Remember that from two weeks ago. So after the word of God was read, there was weeping. He said, no, go and celebrate. They opened the word of God and they celebrated the word. They were joyful. They were singing. There was a barbecue going on. And then we ended in chapter 8 where they obeyed the word promptly. They started reading the scriptures again. They said, we're supposed to do these things. Let's do them. Our God has met with us. Our God has restored us. Our God has done a great work of redeeming and renewing. You know what? We need to respond in, in obedience to him. Not to get him to love us, but he's already been so good to us. Let's respond. And, and that's, the, that's, that's the way it's supposed to work. Christians are not just to sit around. They're supposed to respond to the love and the grace and the mercy God has already shown them. The community gathered together, chapter 8, and they celebrated the, food, the um, feast of booths or tabernacles. They lived in shacks with branches and twigs as a memorial of the provision of God and, and the faithfulness of God as they were wandering through the desert for 40 years. So as we come to chapter 9, it's three weeks later. God has called the people back to the place of weeping. They respond in prayer, we'll see in, in Nehemiah 9, about the, the, and brokenness about their sin. So after this encounter which got, with God, which causes them to celebrate, the believers now come to face-to-face, three weeks, over three weeks later, with their sin and depravity. Our text this morning in Nehemiah 9, we're just going to get through the first few verses, is all about the nation's repentance. It's all about confession of sin, the nation's confessions of sins, and their confidence in their God, Right? Confession and confidence. Nehemiah 9 is the longest prayer in the Bible. Turn there with me, Nehemiah 9. Right? So prayer is our way in which we open our hearts to God. God gets to see our hearts. God gets to know us from a human perspective. He already knows everything about us. But we get to share our hearts with him in prayer. And then God speaks to us. How? Through his word. Right? We talk. 
we listen. You can't grow. You'll never grow in your walk with Jesus. You'll never grow in the likeness of Christ unless you're in his word and you're in prayer. Amen? All right, so three things. The great confession, verses 1 through 5a, the great creator, and finally the great covenant, and we'll go into communion. So let's look at the great confession. Hmm. I wonder if, let me see if that will change. Nope, okay. Interesting. All right. Let me go back. Can you go back to the first slide? The great confession. Now, chapter 9, verse 1. Now, on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Verse 3, they stood up. I want you to think about this. What's going on here? And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. It's three hours. Their day lasted 12. So a quarter of the day is three. For another quarter, another three hours, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. Verse 4, on the stairs, on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Cadmiel, Shabaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, Chenani, and they cried out the loud voice to the Lord their God. Then other Levites, obviously, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, I guess they got, I hope they're not brothers. Can you imagine calling all them for dinner? Hasbani, Sherebiah, Hadiah, Shabaniah, and Bethiah said, Stand up, bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Now remember, the Jewish people had gathered Chapter 8 begins the first day of the seventh month, sort of like our new year. And for 21 to 22 days, they celebrated the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths. Now it's two days after all three of the feasts, and they're back again in prayer and confession and repentance. Weeping, which we saw, had been postponed until after the festivals. I truly believe that it was appropriate for them to rejoice in this new, you know, renewed relationship with their God and we'll get back to breaking or being broken over your sin. Commentators are crazy about this text because they're like, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. They come into this relationship and they're supposed to have a party first, then they're broken. That's not the way it works. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's life for me. You're right. Have you, how many times have you been on this mountaintop experience with deep and, and this wonderful intimacy with God? The scriptures are speaking to you. Uh, you find yourself, you know, singing and, and praising and hearing from God. And then all of a sudden you find yourself doing such stupid things. And there you are from this mountaintop experience to flatter on your face saying, Lord how did I go from there to here? Lord, I, I had this, this intimacy with you. I felt like everything was so pure and now I feel like I got to fall on my face and repent. That's life. That's growing pains. First notice in our text, the posture of the Israelites going into community. They were fasting. So they're refusing to eat. They're, 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 they're the self-denial um, and placing their heart, their mind, their thoughts on spiritual things. That's why people would fast. 
They wore sackcloth. Sackcloth, if you don't know, is a a coarse garment made of goat hair or camel's hair. Its purpose was to make you extremely uncomfortable. It's not silk or cashmere. This was this sign of of brokenness. It was a sign of humility. It was a sign of repentance. and, And sackcloth, wearing sackcloth, symbolized profound sorrow. Fasting, sackcloth, and then earth or dust on their heads. Reminded them of the mortality from dust I came, from dust I will go. And again, a sign of mourning and humility. What is important for us to see and realize in this passage is this. Their outward appearance, the fasting, the sackcloth, and the dust on their heads, this outward experience expressed the truth of the inward reality, what was going on in their heart. It was this outward expression of a heart that has been broken over sin, that is aching, that is sad, that is, that is ready to, to confess and to repent of sin. And there's a principle I thought in there somewhere. How often do I, how often do I mask the inward pain and struggle I'm having with outward adornment? Where the outside doesn't really, really show what's really going in my heart, right? We know that. How's things going? Great. I'm not saying we should go out and and if you're having a bad day, wear a potato sack and come on in. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. But I do think we need to be careful on how we make believe. How when what's really going on in our lives is not something we are willing to. To only be, not only be honest with God, but to be honest with people around us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we were a community of people who were honest about our sin and genuine about our repentance? We think, we think that if we're that way, people are going to say, and you call yourself a Christian, I think that they would say, wow, things are really rough. Yeah, I, all, all I have to do is hold on to Jesus. That's all I got. And that would bring him more glory than a fake smile. Amen? Verse 2 says they were separated from all foreigners. They might have remembered in Leviticus, it says, to be holy because I am the Lord. I am holy and have set you apart from the nations to be my own. That's that sanctification. There was supposed to be something different. There was something unique about the people of God in comparison to the rest of the cultures and to the nations that are around them. Israel's history, if you read, Tragic story of what happens when believers in Yahweh, those who've trusted in God, did not make a clean break from world, from the worldliness. And because this was an agreement that God and a covenant that God made with Israel, it is only covenantal people that, that God has called into covenant that were there and, and spending time of repenting and confessing their sins. But let me be clear, because whenever we talk about this, I think I need to say that separation from worldliness does not mean isolation. The people of God were to be a testimony to the world. And that can't happen when we are isolated and in seclusion. Right? I mean, how did, And that's the tension we live in. Some people here, if I may say, are too cozy with the things of this world. God's saying to you, you need to be distinctive. There needs to be a difference. There needs to be such a difference that is drawing people to Christ, that you're living for him. You're too cozy with the world. James 4 reminds us, don't you know 
that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's harsh language. The world or worldliness, just so we are on the same page, is this idea, this thought, this belief, this worldview that treats the world as if that's all there is. It is a system of thought and a system of, of life. It's a worldview that rejects God and wants nothing to do with him. But in order to not become worldly or isolationist, we need to understand the culture practices of our day. And I'm not going to go into this. There's a lot of stuff on, online. You can talk with me we could, or Ricky and we can point you in the right direction where God's people need to live in that tension and understand that cultural practice of those, some of them should be received, some of them should be rejected, and some of them need to be redeemed. And as Christians, we need to not put our brain on you know, autopilot, but recognize what is it that I should be engaging? What is it should I be not? doing you know all those things are a lot of questions there are things in culture that you know we shouldn't emulate but we shouldn't escape we should engage for the cause of christ and that's again i don't want to get sidetracked but separation does not mean isolation it means being distinctive and differently and being sent into the world as salt and light right there's a big difference between the two and just like believers today Israel's separation was not a command to live in their little God bubble. That's not what they're doing here. They're, they're gathering together to confess their sins in covenant before the God in which they worship. God called them out of the world, but also called them to be light to the world. Let me give you one verse, Isaiah 42, 6. He says, I am the Lord, talking to Israel, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for all nations. To open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Did you know that Moses was given the law from God? And when Moses brought that law to the people, this is what he said. It's very interesting. Deuteronomy 4, Moses says to them, See, I have taught you statutes, statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. He says, keep them and do them for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, we're talking about all peoples, when they hear all these statutes, they will say, surely this Great nation is a wise and understanding people. Notice also that they not only were they dressed that way, and not only were they to separate themselves as, 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 as people of, under covenant, but look what they, they confessed their sins. Not just their sins, but the sins of their fathers. There, there is solidarity in their guilt. They're recognizing we have sinned and our fathers have sinned. That's something we don't do today. Right? Now, we, we need to confess our sins one to another, James tells us. Now, I'm not saying each one take a turn on the mic and come on up and start confessing your sins. But I am saying that God has, in his, in his wonderful care for us, brought us together not only in community on a Sunday morning, but has given us one another in community groups. And together we gather, and that's a good place where you need to find somebody and say, I'm struggling I need to confess my sins to you. Not that they can absolve them of the sins, but I will tell you something, and every one of you know it's true. It is easy to tell God in a closet that you've sinned. It is twice as hard 
to look at a brother or a sister and tell them that you've messed up again. Yes, everybody. Oh, yeah. There's a difference. Okay? Verse 3. We'll keep moving. They spent three hours reading their Bibles, three hours in confessing their sins. How many hours is that? Three plus three? Six. How long was the service? Six. Aren't you glad we teach the importance of hermeneutical? That's a big word. Practice. Not, not everything's prescriptive, commanded. We should follow, but just descriptive. That's just what's going on. Everybody say amen, because we're going to be here for six hours, if that's what it says right here. I, I, that's what I'm reading. They were there for six hours. It's, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive. You're welcome. And then they get the order right. They read from the law, they confess their sins, and they worship God. The word opened up to them. They see their sin, they see their depravity, and they begin to understand God's greatness and his grace in their life. And they worship him, verse 4. Now, what's so cool about this as we finish out this one point is there, what's going on, and most commentaries point out, is that there are two sets of Levites. One Levite is on the stairs. The other Levite is kind of like they're having this worship service together. One of them is crying out with a loud voice. Uh, the Hebrew phrase literally means, or generally means, a cry of distress, a grief, a brokenness, a confession. The other ones are, are, are just praising him and, and talking about the glory and the greatness of God. So you've got confession and repentance and repentance and, and petitions and then you got praises and, and glory and it's just these, these two groups of Levites are just talking and praising and, and shouting together. Great service going on. There's brokenness by their sins. There's shouts of praise of God's goodness and his greatness. Look at verse 5. The worshipers then say, people stand. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. And I'll tell you, I'm so glad that is in there. Because before you come to a time of, of acute confession where you're getting down to the nitty-gritty, it is always good to praise God for who he is. It is always good to start with adoration. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Amen? Point two, the great creator. So they're going to start praying. Verse 5b, all the way through 37, through the rest of the chapters, this long prayer. The believers reflect on God's nature, God's good character, his mighty works in all of history. And adoration is the place to start. J.I. Packer wrote this. He says, talk about the greatness of God, and, 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 and we'll see about God the creator. But he says this. This is where most of us go astray. Talking about adoration and worship God. Our thoughts of God are not great enough. We fail to reckon with the reality of his limitless wisdom and power. Because we are limited and weak, we imagine that at some points God is also. We think of God as too much like what we are. End quote. Maybe you're struggling here today having faith in God, trusting in God, knowing what God wants of you, be able to trust him in walking in it, maybe it's because your view of God is way too puny. Maybe it is way too small. Maybe your view of God is way too narrow. Friends, we must glory in the incomparable magnificence of the majesty of God. And in verse 6, they start off with a clear statement of God's greatness in creation. Blessed be your name is exalted above all blessing and praise. Verse 6, you are the Lord alone. You alone. You have made the heavens, the heavens of heavens, and with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it. 
the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. The point, there is no one like our God. The evidence of his greatness is seen in his creation. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. It's always best to begin with the greatness of God. It is always best to begin with the greatness of God. The unparalleled, incomparable, unequaled, unmatchless greatness of God. People are starving for it. People are starving for this vision of the awesomeness of who God is. Family, if we saw, if we were regularly reminded of the awesomeness and the greatness of God, we would not be so greedy. We would not be so envious. If we saw and, and understood and got deeper into the greatness of God, understanding the greatness of God, our eyes would not lust after things. Lust after bad thoughts. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't get so easily ticked off at our spouses like I did. If we saw the greatness of God, we wouldn't be so discouraged about the evil and the godlessness of our culture. God is great. We would live our lives simply and continually with the greatness of God in the front of our minds and things would change. Do you see God as great and awesome and omnipotent, all-powerful God this morning? Is your God too small? Is your view of Him too puny? He's clearly seen in this prayer as the God of creation. In fact, He alone, it says, is creator. He alone made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. And praise begins with God alone. He is the self-existent one. Genesis 1 tells us that He is the personal God who created. He is the the self-existent one who alone has no beginning and no end. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever, you formed the earth and the world. From everlasting to everlasting, the psalmist said, you are God. God's not dependent on us. God did not create this glorious creation because he was lacking in anything. He doesn't need anything. He himself is complete in all his goodness and all his greatness. But he is a creative God who chooses in love to create the world, to create us in the Imago Dei, to display His glory to the world. Not because He was lonely. You got this crazy thinking out there that God needed us. He, he had this missing piece. He is full in Himself in the Trinity. He wasn't lonely. He is full. And He created not out of emptiness, but out of greatness, out of goodness. The vast solar system and the movement even of the seas And everything in this great universe declares the greatness, the goodness, the awesomeness of God. Amen? And it says that you preserve all things. So God is preserving, if not for the continual, constant, upholding power, creative command of the omnipotent God, everything would disintegrate. Dr. Arthur Harding, he's he's an astronomer, he wrote a book, he says, he asks this question, who can study the science of astronomy and contemplate the star-lit heavens with the knowledge of the dimensions of the celestial bodies, their movements, their enormous distances, 
without bowing his head in reverence to the power that brought this universe into being and safely guides its individual members of it, end quote. Every time we see the change of the seasons, every time we see the, and observe the beauty of creation, every time we sit for a meal that God has provided food from the earth, declares the greatness and the goodness of God. The leaves that fall, the beautiful colors of the foliage point to the greatness of God. What a miracle we have. And here's the thing. If God is self-existent, and he is, if God is a personal creator, and he is, why is it that people refuse to praise him for it? There could be a lot of reasons, but let me give you one. Because if he is, then we're accountable to him. If he is... We're going to answer to him. See, all the mythology, the evolution, Darwinism, mythological explanation, really is just a failed human attempt to remove man's responsibility from his creator. There is none. I'm not accountable. There is one. He's a personal creator who created you. He created me in the image and likeness of himself. He created this earth. He's a personal God, self-existent one. And that's true. We're going to... Meet him. See him. We're accountable to him. And people don't want to hear that. So do you praise him for his creation? Do you see the beauty of God and give him praise for it? They did. They absolutely did. They had this great confession of the sin, this great creator, and finally look at the great covenant. The following verses, 7 and 8. What's going to happen, and we'll look at this next week, we're going to end here. What, what happens is these people begin to pray and they're going through the whole history of Israel. We're going to get a, a biblical theology, they call it. What's going on in history with Israel? That's what's going to happen with all these verses. And um, basically it talks about God's faithfulness. It talks about their disobedience and their failure to keep his word. It's really about God's goodness, God's faithfulness, all about what God has done. In fact, in chapter 7, 30 times the word you, meaning God, is mentioned. It's all about God. Romans fifteen four gives us the reason why we should study what God has done in the nation of Israel. He says, for everything, Paul writes, that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So he's going to go through this. Look with me in verse 7 and 8. Right? He starts with creation. And now he goes to covenant, the covenant with Abraham. You, verse 7, are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Gargasite. And you have, and you, Lord, have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Their prayer begins with creation, and now they're recognizing the forming of God's people. God had called a man named Abram, meaning exalted father, brought him out of the paganism in a pagan land in Ur and made a covenant with him and changed his name to Abraham, father of the multitude. Now notice with me in the first part of verse 7, it says, you are the Lord. It's the same verse in verse 6, same, same phrase. You are the Lord who calls. You are the great God who creates, I mean. You're the one who creates. You alone are creator God. And now you alone are God, the one who calls. You create and you call. 
Abraham, an ordinary guy, living in paganism, and God calls him. Abraham comes knocking. Oh, Abraham, this is God talking. We know that it's about God, not about Abraham. We know because we studied Genesis before. And we saw that Abraham had all kinds of problems in his life. Let's just call them lapses of faith and rebellion, right? From not waiting, I'm not waiting on God's promises, I'm going to sleep with this, with this slave girl named Hagar, and I think I'll have a child, his name is Ishmael, and here it is, 4,000 years later, there's still a problem between Ishmael and Isaac. Still a problem. Then you remember Abraham... He went into, the, went into a land and he saw the king and the king, he said to the king, you know what, here, take my sister. You could have her part of your harem. Take her as your wife. Oh, oh, did I say sister? I meant she's my wife. I'm sorry. I, I didn't mean to do that. Honey, I, I'm sorry. I, it slipped. It was a Freudian slip. I didn't mean to say you were my sister and give you to the king. But we also notice here that he was a faithful man. And I thought, you know, God speaks of his faithfulness and yet we know about his failures. And I thought, that's me too. I could be faithful. Can you be faithful? Can you fall on your face too? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I, I could do that. I could do that. I could do both. Abraham did trust God. God. Abraham did walk with God. Abraham did bring his son Isaac up to the mountain to be sacrificed in Genesis 22. What is so interesting about this verse, if you look at chapter, uh, chapter uh, 9 of, 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 of Nehemiah, verses 7 and 8, the Levites are praying, and I want you to notice in your Bible, they go from chapter 12, God chose Abram. They move to chapter 17 of Genesis now, I'm sorry. So the Levites are praying. They're rehearsing the history of God's call to Abraham. They start in Genesis 12 where God calls Abram out of the land of Ur. Okay, Abram, chapter 12 of Genesis. Follow me? Then they go to Genesis chapter 17. It says, God chose him called him Abram, and then God changed his name to Abraham. That's chapter 17, if you, if you remember. So they go from chapter 12, the call of God, Abram, to chapter 17, where they change his name to Abraham. And then the Levites, as they're praying in Nehemiah, go back to chapter 15, where it says God found his heart faithful. So they didn't do it in a historical, they did it in a theological. They did it in saying, you know, God called him, his name was Abram, God changed his name to Abraham, and God saw his heart faithful. Chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 17, back to chapter 15. You think, well, so what? Well, there is a so what. Otherwise, I wouldn't have said all that. In chapter 15, it says Abraham believed the Lord. And that God counted his faith as righteous, brought into right relationship through his faith. In the word of God. It wasn't works. It wasn't something Abraham did. It's something Abraham believed. And because he believed God's word, and because he believed God and what God had said, God said, it is your faith, your faith alone, that I will reckon you righteous, made right with me. That was in chapter 15. Right? So it's not, it's not his works. It's his faith. And it's been that way ever since. We see that New Testament teaching as well. Nothing you can do. Faith is trusting in the Lord of the word and the word of the Lord. Abraham believed God, took him at his word. It was not his works. His righteousness was credited to his account because of his faith in what God was going to do. You can have a $20 bill and have faith in its buying power. But let me tell you something. No matter how much faith you have in that $20 bill, what's important is the bill itself and what it's worth. It's faith in who God is, not faith itself. Okay? You can have faith in things that you're going to send you straight to hell. 
It's faith in Almighty God and the saving work of Jesus Christ. That, that's what it's all about. So that's chapter 15. Now look here, I want to close here. Look at Nehemiah 8, excuse me, Nehemiah 9, how it closes. His name is Abram. You call his name Abraham. You found his heart faithful is when he expressed his faith and you counted it as righteous. And look what it says. You found his heart faithful before you, Nehemiah 9, and made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land of the Canaanite and the rest of them. And you, he says at the end, and you, God, have kept your promise for you are righteous. I want you to understand what's happening here. I believe the emphasis that the Levites are putting on God's faithfulness and his promise is a direct, a direct remembrance of what actually took place in chapter 15 of Genesis when God actually made the covenant. In Genesis 15, which we talked about, Abraham expresses his faith, God counts it as righteous, and immediately after that, he says to God, God says to him, I'm going to give you the land. Well, how am I going to know that? Before they said, I'm going to give you a son. How am I going to know that? And, and God says to Abraham, go outside, look at the stars, see all of them? You're going to have a son. You're going to have a son. You're going to have a descendant. Remember, the promise is a land, a promised land. The, the, the living Lord will be their God, and there'll be a lineage. There'll be a son. That's the promise that was given. That's the covenant made. Looks outside. He says, okay, I see all the stars. You're going to have a descendant. You're going to have a son. No, you don't have one yet. You're going to have one. What about the land? He said, you're going to have the land. And then in Genesis 15, he says, Oh Lord, how do I know? And God said to Abraham, Listen, I made a covenant with you, man. I'm going to keep my covenant. This is what I want you to do. He says, Bring me, God talking to Abraham, bring me a heifer. I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to keep my covenant. Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Okay, Abraham, go get it. And he brought all of them, and then Abraham cut them in half and laid each, each of them against the other. In other words, he cut the animals, he sacrificed the animals, and he opened them up. Abraham does exactly what God tells him to do because Abraham knows what time it is. It's time to cut the covenant. When he enters into a contract, we get a team of lawyers. When they enter into a contract, they share a meal, make an oath, or they cut pieces of animals, and they lay them side by side, just what... It's telling us. And what they would do in those days, they would cut the animals and they would walk in between the animals as symbolic of an oath they would take. If you don't keep your covenant, that's what's going to happen to you. If I don't keep my covenant, I, I, I have a, a, an oath that I'm making and now if I don't keep it and I don't do it, it's a self-curse. Let this happen to me, what has happened to these animals. Abraham knows what's up. You're going to get a land. There's going to be a people. There's going to be a savior. There's going to be, I'm going to be your living Lord. But listen, go get the animals, cut them. And then all of a sudden it says in Genesis 15 again that Adam fell to a sleep. And at that moment when he was in a deep trance, a melting, a smoking fire pot comes down from heaven and a blazing torch passes between the sacrifices. Everyone knows what that is. There's no question. It was the presence of God. A theophany, a tangible manifestation of God. So what is happening is Abraham is cutting this covenant, getting it ready, and it is God alone who comes down and walks through the pieces of the sacrifice. And what is so remarkable is that God does not say, Abraham, wake up, I did my 
You do your part. I've walked through, now you walk through. There is no Abraham walking through the peace because Abraham can't keep anything just like you and I can't keep anything. God was symbolizing that if he were to break his word, that he was to break the covenant, that he himself would be cut off, torn to pieces. May I be slaughtered like these butchered butchered animals. It's an act-out curse, a self-denunciation, a divine denunciation guaranteeing that Abraham, you will have a son, you will have a land, or God is saying, I would die. And God cannot die. Or can he? On the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. He took the bread, he looked up to heaven, he broke the bread. He gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then after the supper, he took the cup. He took the cup of wine. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now watch this, Galatians 3. Listen to what Galatians 3 says and we're going to close. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. You can't work for it. For the righteous shall live by faith. We just saw that, Genesis 15. But the, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. If you want to live by the law, go do it. Let's see how far you get. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. All of us have sinned. And deserve the wrath of God. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Paul writes, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Do you see that? On the cross... Jesus Christ's blood was shed. He received the curse so we could get the blessing. He lived the perfect life, fulfilling the whole law of God, fully obeying it every single moment. We deserve to have our our blood shed, but he takes our curse so we can have his blessing. Which means not only are we saved by grace, not only are we brought into a covenant by grace, but we stay in this covenant by grace as well. God is great. Confession of sin is appropriate. He has made a covenant where all our sins have been forgiven. Because although we deserve to be cursed, Jesus took that curse for us. And although... We should be cut off. The Bible says that Jesus was cut off on the cross as he hung in darkness and the wrath of God poured out on him so that you can have relationship with him. There is a great confession. He's a great creator and he's made a great covenant. This table represents that covenant, the new covenant in the blood of Jesus. All the promises that God has made to Abraham, all the promises that God has made is yes in him, it says the scripture. Because Jesus on the cross, broken for us, poured his blood, shed for us in atonement for our sins. How awesome that is. So I want to invite you, if you've never trusted Christ, to turn. He's a great and awesome God. He's holy, he's perfectly as good. Trust him today. Jesus went to the cross and died an atoning sacrifice for your sins. Maybe you're here today and you've heard that before, but nothing has changed. Maybe you've never said, I need to stop 
going in the direction I'm going. I need to stop in rebellion. I need to stop. Lord has been speaking to me. Stop living my life for me. Stop living my life for the people around me. I need to live my life for Jesus. And today's the day. The band's going to play. We're going to confess sin. We're going to repent of sin. Then we're going to celebrate the joyous truth of the, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus for you. And I will tell you that God is good and God wants us to respond in faith to him and enjoy and celebrate his forgiveness. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you, Father, for sending your son the fulfillment of all that you have promised. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you for the blood that was shed. Thank you for the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Father, I would ask that you would work mightily in our hearts, that we would stand firm in the work of Christ, trusting in him alone for our salvation. And Lord, when we fail and when we bruise our knees and when we we do things we ought not to do, Lord, we may come to the table, we may come to the cross where our sins can be forgiven. And Lord, we know that you love us. You will always love us. So God, as we continue to worship, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we pray, Father, that you would get glory in it. And Lord, we pray as Christians, we know we're not perfect, we're not there yet. That we're in the process of sanctification, which means confessing and repenting of sin regularly but doing so in such a way it doesn't change our position in you because of all that Jesus has done. So help us to do it with brokenness over sin, repentance of heart, but a joyful spirit as we celebrate the work of Jesus. And it's in his name. It is well.